More than 70% of Trump's endorsees as of April 19th believe that 2020 was fraudulent, whether it's Vance in Ohio, whether it's Dr. Oz, or whether it's Herschel Walker. These candidates are towing the line. They're saying the election was stolen. And in certain cases, including secretaries of state races and attorneys general races, they're actually explicitly promising to do things, not only about the previous election, but about the future election. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. And a reminder to our viewers and listeners that we have a newsletter that just released this week. Uh, you could go to Substack and just search for The Lost Debate, or you could sign up on our website and got an article from earlier in the week about the investigations into Trump in New York. And then we got another article next week about all the news you missed while you're obsessing over Elon Musk. Corey, though, where are we going to start on the show today? We got a lot to talk about on today's show. The Supreme Court considers the prayers of a high school football coach with some big implications for religious liberty. We'll go through the latest on Ukraine, both on the war front and developments around the world and the Trump effect. We'll discuss how the former president is making his presence failed bigly in GOP primaries. But first, a new bill in California would call on the state's medical board to crack down on doctors spreading COVID misinformation. A lot of people on the left are inclined to support that, so it'll come as no surprise that Democrats are behind this bill. But the concept of what misinformation even is and how that label has been applied throughout the pandemic in particular ultimately makes this a bigger conversation about science, safety, groupthink, and the public good. So, Ricky, I'm sure you can answer all of those giant questions right off the bat. Tell us a little bit about this bill. Okay, so this bill um, is before the California Assembly right now. It's Bill uh, 2098, which designates the Quote, dissemination and promotion of misinformation or disinformation related to COVID-19 is professional misconduct. Um, and so doctors could potentially risk losing their license um, or be disciplined if they share any information regarding the nature of the virus, treatment and prevention and vaccine efficacy and safety that goes against what would be considered the standard of care. And so they they quote unnamed quote major news outlets that have reported that doctors have been the most dangerous kind of pro proliferators of disinformation around COVID. And, you know, I there's been a lot of controversy surrounding this bill. We talked a lot with the Don't Say Gay Bill about the issue of just very vague things that you're not allowed to talk about or touch. And I think this very much applies in this situation. There's no clear definition of what misinformation is and if potentially things that have been dubbed misinformation that we now know is truth would have been illegal to discuss under this sort of provision. Yeah, I think my big question here is like, what is the role of a medical board, right? Because I think if we take COVID out of the discussion and say, well, like, do we want medical boards, uh, you know, deciding whether a doctor should keep their license or not because they're outside of the realm of accepted scientific consensus? You can imagine a world where, all right, like you kind of want your medical board saying, all right, if you're like, you know, still prescribing lobotomies or radium to treat arthritis or mercury to treat syphilis or bloodletting or trepanation, you're like, all right, like if you are prescribing those things uh, that are that are clearly outside of scientific consensus, I'm kind of, I kind of want my medical board involved in that. And obviously like there's a sliding scale from that to like, let's say ivermectin debates or something. But what is the role of a medical board? Well, so the role already is to, um, they're already going after anyone who's 
engaged in unprofessional conduct in medicine, which is super broad. And, um, you know, sometimes it's just an investigation and it ends up being fine. Sometimes licenses are revoked. And I think the issue here is that this is expanding specifically into COVID, quote, misinformation. And a lot of the proponents of this bill are actually saying that the board is already able to go after people who are really grotesquely mispracticing in these sort of situations, but that they're not going after them fast enough. And I think the reason that this is so controversial is that we're in, you know, this isn't a conversation about lobotomies. Like this would have potentially made a conversation about maybe ventilators aren't the best solution to people with low oxygen levels in COVID, which was the standard of care and then turned out to actually be potentially a more harmful route. And the only reason we found this out is because doctors on the ground were, were kind of experimenting in a cautious and ultimately wise way and determined that there was a different course of care that was that was preferable. And so in a situation like COVID that is developing, the idea that we should have a medical board that is just like rapidly firing off, like people are doing misinformation or or saying that maybe natural immunity is a factor, maybe saying that myocarditis is something that that a patient could think about if they're considering a vaccine. You know, I just I think that it's potentially really stifling to the medical profession to say that all things that are not explicitly about the standard of care in a in an evolving crisis could put your license in jeopardy. I believe that this particular bill is trying to address egregious cases of misinformation because there is the possibility that there are doctors who are saying things like, well, vaccines just don't work, you know, and th that's an egregious case in which that person probably does need to be removed from their position. But I think your concern with the bill is the vagueness of it, the fact the that it could be used to, like you said, if somebody says, well, you're a young man, so maybe you don't need to get this vaccine because of that risk of myocarditis, then that person could be disciplined under this bill. Is that correct? Yeah. Or even somebody who potentially is looking at um, like FDA approved drugs that maybe is just a course to put someone on just in case that it's safe to like lessen COVID and see like fluvoxamine is something that has been, you know, promising in some trials. And, you know, I mean, we've experimented with different things. And of course, there have been wins and losses in that sense. But I just don't like the idea that this government approved science in an evolving crisis, especially when the government approved science has changed often, is something that is moving to the legislature when there was already a medical board in place. And the complaint is that it's not fast enough. I think that due process and kind of slowing these things down and making sure that we're not like sowing more distrust in the medical profession by separating people from their trusted family doctors is a really important conversation to have. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on the, the fact that the history here about COVID isn't great in the sense that we, we as a society, not just medical boards, have cracked down on people prematurely. The Wuhan theory is a good example of this. Like you're right about the ventilators piece. And so I'm sympathetic here. I think there is, I'm a little confused though at some of the critics because I think some critics are saying that this is too this is too specific and signaling out COVID and then some saying it's too vague and that the existing vague standards about medical malpractice are good enough. And so I'm like, well, if the existing vague standards about medical malpractice are good enough to like crack down on quack science or whatever, then this making it slightly more specific to COVID, I'm not sure it adds new avenues for abuse, but like what worries me the most is that that although I think they need to clarify this and, and make sure that they're not chilling actual practice of science and dissent, some of the most prominent proponents of, you know, or, or skeptics of this bill 
are laying out a standard that I'm not sure we as a society want to go down. So I think, you know, one article that you sent and I think is really making the rounds is from Barry Weiss's Substack by this doctor from Stanford, Jay Bhattacharya. And this is what he had to say in his article. He says, he says that we should be careful about stripping doctors over their licenses for, quote, saying things the state doesn't like. We don't have to imagine what that looks like. Well, doctors aren't just any people saying anything, right? Like if you're saying something to, like if you're saying to some some patient that, you know, they should use radium to treat arthritis, that's speech, but that's also a recommendation. So we're already there. But then he goes on to, I think, like he should really be put in the Hall of Fame for exaggeration here. This is what he says towards the end of the piece. He says, history provides abundant examples of what happens when the state regulates science. In the former Soviet Union, Stalin's fa- favorite geneticist, dominated biology and agricultural sciences, and Lysenko, who's the geneticist, rejected Mendelian genetics in favor of his own theory that plants could inherit acquired characteristics. He goes on. So basically he's saying, when the state regulates science, that's what we should be worried about. Well, the state regulates science, and we all agree that the state should regulate science, cloning, nuclear fission, human experimentation, eugenics, approval, dissemination of drugs, using CRISPR for genetic engineering. Never mind, like, when you extend science to, like, you know, AI, you know, even uh, even Elon Musk is in favor of regulating AI. So, like, this idea that we can't have the state regulate science to me is silly. When you read his article in Whole, though, the, the thing that he's going after is this idea of a false medical consensus around COVID that clearly is just not the case right now. There are doctors who who have disagreed historically on different issues. And, you know, we're not talking about lobotomies. We're talking about COVID that has arisen in the past two years. And there is not a consensus. And the state should not be going beyond enforcing what is clearly a consensus, I think, is his point. And I I just, I agree that the idea of misinformation and disinformation in an evolving conflict, setting this sort of standard and precedent is, in such a vague way, is potentially a slippery slope dangerous situation. There's a consensus on some things, like vaccines, the fact that they work. There's a consensus around that. Well, that's what gets me about this, is this reminds me of what happened with vaccines, which is like, I've been convinced now to be more skeptical of COVID vaccine mandates, but many of the very same people who are pushing uh, back against COVID vaccine mandates, for instance, required immunizations at school, have now pushed successful legislation that uh, exempts all vaccines from being required in schools. And so I'm like, now we're moving beyond. and And that's why this standard to me is like, people can go read this piece, we'll link to it. There's a charitable way to read it and not, but it, it feels like a he's laying out a standard that you could easily apply in situations that at least I'm not comfortable with. It, it seems like they're opening up this broad attack on you know, the government regulation of science that I don't want to apply in other situations, even if I'm sympathetic here. Mm, well, I just think in the instance that we're talking about here with the COVID vaccine and stuff, there is nuance. There are you know situations where I think it's appropriate for a doctor to give all of the information, the costs, the benefits, the risk analysis. And unfortunately, this just could have a chilling effect and a stifling effect in a situation as evolving as it is. That's where I come down on this. And I just would, if this sort of bill were to pass, I would like to see it be much more clearly defined and to also define what sort of retaliation would occur. Well, hopefully California will do that, refine the bill a little bit more. So let's move on to our next story. In 2015, a football coach at a public high school outside of Seattle took a knee at midfield to pray after a game. He had been doing it for years, but when the school district caught wind of his postgame ritual, they asked the coach, Joseph Kennedy, to stop. 
Officials were concerned he might be breaking the law, violating the separation between church and state. And Kennedy did stop, but only for like a month. His lawyers encouraged him to resume his prayers, arguing he was acting as a private citizen, not in his capacity as a coach and therefore a government employee. The school then effectively fired him, and his case has been working its way through the courts ever since. Now, all these years later, with a very different 6-3 majority on the Supreme Court, Kennedy's case could have been decades of legal precedent on what's called the Establishment Clause, a crucial section of the First Amendment. So, Ravi, I know you never took the bar. Happy birthday, by the way. But can you give us your opening arguments on this case here? Well, I don't need the bar. I, Ricky convinced me now we don't need these government entities telling me whether I could, <laughs> I, I could practice law or not. Forget them. Uh, and so with that in mind, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give my best effort here. And if I get anything wrong... You know, I don't have any, uh, you know, the ABA can't come after me because they didn't give me a license. Uh, I think this is a big question where there's a tension between two different rights here. There's the right of the coach to exercise his free speech mm -hmm. and uh, the free exercise of religion. And then there's the right of non-believers to not be coerced or influenced by government entities. Uh, both are protected in the Constitution. And this, this, this case comes down to how do we resolve that tension, but also how do we even see these facts in the first place? And I think what is challenging about this set of facts is that neither side is, is stipulating to the same set of facts. And then if you listen to the oral argument, it's really interesting that Supreme Court justices are reading into the facts wildly different uh, they're having different interpretations of the facts and definitely selectively emphasizing different parts of the facts. And as, so as I read different accounts of this case and then read the oral arguments, I've now gone back and forth on this case multiple times. And I think it is, I think it's a much closer case than either side is letting on. And, but I think like the outcome here is pretty much determined. I think it's going to go in favor of the coach because of some of the history of the justices that we know they, the four justices before Amy Conan Barrett sat confirmed signaled sympathy for this coach in a, in a prior version of this case. So my sense is, based on what we heard in oral arguments and the history of this case, that the, the judges are going to, the justices are going to rule in favor of this coach. But what they should do, I think, is a much more complicated story. And so the two issues kind of at play here are whether the school is endorsing a certain religious belief um, by allowing him to pray on the field or whether the players are feeling coerced just by the social pressure. And so how how do those two things kind of play together here? Well, there used to be, an, there was a case, it, it originally what the Supreme Court used to say was the government violates the constitution if it just merely endorses a religion, right? And that was the strictest test. Like that was the test that basically anytime like a coach prays, prays before, you know, like anything that a, a, a official of a school would do in this case to signal their religious practice would probably violate that establishment clause. A school could signal support for religion, but as long as other people don't feel coerced to join in, then it's fine. So that's why that coercion test is really important. And if and basically what's happening in this case is the school district is saying that they were worried about coercion, but they kind of came to that argument late. And the lawyers for the, the coach are saying, well, you weren't concerned about coercion in the beginning, so you're only concocting that argument now to win this case. And so there's like a lot of legalese going on about that. And I think the question comes down to putting yourself in the position of the students, seeing the coach 
going out to midfield. And there's many iterations of what this coach has done. So there are previous versions of what the coach did that that even the coach's lawyers admit were violated the law, but yeah. they're not defending that anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's not what's at issue here. They're saying the one he was he took a solitary act on his own to go into the middle of the field after the game and nobody joined him. How do we treat that? And so it's a much more narrow question than when the other students were joining in with him. Uh, and just to be clear, the school previously said that, quote, the sole reason, unquote, um, that they went after him was the endorsement, which is definitely harder to um, enforce, especially considering that that requires that an objective observer, like completely familiar with context, would would reasonably believe that the school is endorsing something. And this is happening after they'd already disciplined him and asked him not to and asked him to do it in private. And so that's that's a much higher bar to cross. And this was explicitly what they were claiming at first. But I think that the coercion one is a much easier argument relatively to get by with. Well, when you look at the facts of the case, there was uh, a coach from an opposing team that first brought it to the school's attention that he was doing these prayer rituals in the first place. It really... The line is really drawn between the conservative justices on the court are basically seeing this as an employee workplace discrimination case. They're saying that this person's rights were violated as an employee who was practicing his private religion. And the liberal judges on the court are seeing it more as a test of that establishment clause contained in the First Amendment. Now, one of the claims was that Kennedy was acting as a private citizen when he was performing his prayers on the 50 yard line. However, I don't buy that claim because the game was over with, but, you know, anyone who's played sports in school knows that after the game, you go back to the locker room and many times you have a, a post-game kind of speech. Uh, he's still acting as, in my opinion, he's still a coach in that moment because he has not yet gone back to the locker room. The, the, the people, the athletes have not yet taken off their uniforms. So he's still a coach on that midfield. Just because the game is over with doesn't mean he's no longer a coach. That's like saying, you know, if a teacher's in a classroom and the bell rings, oh, they can just start, you know, popping open a cold one and just start drinking in front of the kids because, oh, the bell rung. They're not a teacher anymore. They don't just cease being a teacher just because a bell rings. Yeah. They cease being a teacher when they go home from work, which he had not yet done. Yeah, I, I think what complicates it, though, is you don't have a constitutional right to drink beer, but you do have a t- constitutional right uh, to, to... The 21st Amendment does give me a constitutional right <laughs> to drink beer. So. It, 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 it prevents the government from prohibiting it, right? Yes. But, like, but to me, like, you have the Establishment Clause, and then you have a test of the Establishment Clause, which is the... Endorsement. Which, which is the, yeah, the, either the endorsement test or the coercion test is the third, which I'm not going to confuse this about. But these are tests that the Supreme Court has come up with to interpret the Constitution. To make matters even more muddy, the Supreme Court isn't exactly clear on which of these three tests they're applying. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that was kind of funny to me is that the Supreme Court was incredulous with the di- the uh, district's, the school district's lawyer when they're like, well, uh, like, you don't know what rule to apply. And I'm listening. I'm like, I don't know what rule to apply either right now. But let's actually listen. These, these oral arguments are really fascinating. There was one part of the oral arguments that I think really gets to the heart of the disagreement here. Okay, assume that the school district had said the right things. They had said, we don't really like this because it is a form of pressure, a form of coercion. Um, uh, we're worried that the, the, the students will feel he gets to put me into a football game or not. He gets to, you know, give me an A in math class or not. And this is a kind of coercion that's improper for 16-year-olds. So, Justice Kagan, in the hypothetical where the coach is giving the post-game talk, 
I think those kinds of concerns about real coercion may well be well-placed. But when the coach is by himself at the midfield giving a 15-second fleeting prayer, those kinds, if you, if you call that coercion, you are making an important category mistake. I think in that hypothetical, they, there well may be a coercion concern. But if instead the coach says, all right, I'm going to go to midfield. I'm going to do this at 15 seconds. I'm going to try to pick a time when most of the players are in the end zone doing something else. And if anybody asks whether I, they can join, I'm going to tell them it's a free country. You don't have to, but do what you want. That's this case, and that's not coercion that counts under the so establishment is, clause. So is, is that the question of this case, whether the facts are my facts or your facts? All right, that tells you everything you need to know. There are two different sets of facts, and then there is the interpretation of how other students are going to read into the coach's act of going into the middle of the field and whether they will feel compelled to do that and whether they will feel punished if they don't. Obviously, there's a lot of follow-up. Like, to me, I would want to know, has this coach engaged in any of that behavior? Who's yes. claiming? You know, meaning, like, has he punished students oh, well, before? Not sure about that. Um, but he had, done, he had done these prayer rituals before in a much more explicit way, in the locker room, at midfield. I mean, he had done this a lot of times before. So this is not like, oh, he did this one time, and it's like, oh, we caught him that one time. No, he had done this a lot of times before. He had been told to stop. He decided not to. When you become a government employee, you give up some of your rights to the freedom of religion in some capacities when it comes to this, what we're talking about here, endorsement and coercion. You give up some of those rights. Yep. And he, as a government employee of a public school, well, gave up some of those there rights. There is an important turning point, though, which is they're not defending what he was doing before he was disciplined because it's clearly in violation, and I agree with you with that. But then afterwards, he was doing it on his own in after the games. And so I think that's where it's in murkier territory, whether that was exercising his own right. I completely agree that beforehand that potentially could have been seen as coercion. But, you know, I I can see the argument that that also wasn't coercive in this latter sort of iteration because he's on his own and no one was being forced to join him. And oftentimes it was completely alone. So but the fact that he had done it before in the eyes of the students is still going to say, well, look what coach is doing. If, if I don't follow his lead, if I'm not the same religion as him, he might discriminate against me. That's what I can see from this case clearly happening. Yeah. So and to kind of wrap this up, my, here's my take on it. I think this is a close call. I think it wouldn't be a close call if the district were clear on how the past actions of the coach played into this fire. Yeah. And so in that sense, I think that a lot of people saying like, this is like the beachhead of like the First Amendment cases for the Supreme Court. I don't think so. I think it, it signals where the court's going, but I don't think if they rule in this coach's favor, it's going to open the floodgates to truly coercive behavior. I think it's a step in a certain direction. And to me, it's not a catastrophe either way, which which way this, this case goes, uh, but it will tell you, you know, where these judges are. And you know, whether they rule on a technicality or not, like you can listen to these oral arguments. They seem highly motivated to go one way or another. I also just want to point out that the high school's football record for that particular season was three and seven. So <laughs> not sure if the prayers were really working. <laughs> On to our next story. Russia is taking its further step yet in retaliating against European sanctions, stopping natural gas shipments to two EU countries, Poland and Bulgaria. With the war in its third month now, we've seen Russian troops withdraw from central Ukraine to focus their efforts on the east. But we're also seeing a series of explosions outside Ukraine's borders this week, raising fears that the conflict could could widen. Uh, Ricky, can you give us a quick update on what's happening on the ground here? 
So this past Sunday was Orthodox Easter, which the vast majority of Ukrainians um, do observe. And traditionally, they'd have a midnight mass, but that had to be canceled because they were concerned about having too many people in congregated settings, which is so sad. And fighting continued to escalate despite the holiday in the south and the east of the country. And just to give a broader sense of the devastation, there have been more than 2,500 civilian deaths, nearly 300 children in all now. And these are UN's numbers. So it's probably significantly higher, but these are the most cautious estimates. Um, And now 11 million people have been displaced, about 5 million in neighboring countries, 6 million within Ukraine. The vast majority of emigres have gone to Poland and a lot of people are taking immigrants into their house there, which is um, really touching, really sad. And 100,000 will come to the United States under the Uniting Ukraine initiative. This now marks the largest refugee exodus since World War II. So the scale is really incredible. Yeah, it, it really is. And you mentioned Poland there. They're becoming a big part of this. There was a Russian state-controlled gas company called Gazprom. They have shut off their supply of natural gas to Poland and Bulgaria. They basically said that the reason they were shutting this gas off was because Poland and Bulgaria were refusing to pay them in rubles. They wanted to be paid in Russian currency. They wanted Dogecoin. Uh, (laughs) I don't think they wanted Dogecoin because that's just not very valuable. But they wanted rubles. And Putin had issued a mandate requiring unfriendly countries that, you know, weren't supporting them in this particular war effort that they had to pay in rubles instead of other currency. Um, Now, Poland gets more than 45% of its natural gas from Russia. Bulgaria gets more than 70%, according to EU data. Last month, the European Union did outline a really ambitious plan to try to wean themselves off of, you know, Russian fuel. And we just got an update right as we were uh, filming that Germany has signaled that it may begin its process of ending its import of Russian oil. Obviously, the United States has banned uh, using Russian oil or importing Russian oil. So this really gets at the heart of Russia really beginning to use that. You know, we always knew that their natural gas pipeline into the EU was a big uh, chess piece for them. It was a big part of their efforts of being able to control these other countries to doing what they want them to do. And now Russia is finally playing that card. Yeah, no, I, it feels to me like there's some kind of threshold cross this week where we're in a new phase of the war. And I think when Blinken went to Congress, he obviously he went to Ukraine and he's come back now, I think, fairly bullish on the prospects of the Ukrainians winning this war. He says yeah. there's, we're seeking a, quote, strategic failure for Russia. And he asks Congress to fully fund his proposal. This is his quote. He says, it was right in front of us. The Ukrainians have won the battle for Kiev. And he seems optimistic. Now, as we've said on the show before, we want to believe these stories. So we have to be a little careful. Like I, I want to believe every piece of news I read about the Ukrainians being successful, but clearly they've outlasted most predictions. Clearly they've succeeded in defending their capital and clearly the United States feels bullish about their prospects and they're now getting some diplomatic cover. Like Poland's moves and Germany's moves, even though they're going in different directions, are in some ways helpful to Ukraine because it isolates Russia. You know, Russia, Russia in a way is isolating itself, but then Germany's actions will further isolate them. And isolated Russia is very helpful to the Ukrainians. Well, the United States is also playing a bigger role here. The Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin remarked that victory from a U.S. perspective would include seeing Russia weakened militarily. That's kind of an odd thing to say because that really plays into some of the far right criticism of this war was that it was all about regime change in Russia and weakening Russia, which was something that Biden steered away from for the longest time. And now we hear his defense secretary saying that, hey, that is an outcome we'd like to see from all of this. Well, did he say regime change or he just said weakening? Well, he said weaken Russian military 
commentary. Uh, but again, that just plays into that narrative yeah. that a lot on the right, on the far right, I'll say, have been saying about all of this. And in response, a Russian foreign minister accused the United States of escalating tensions and even said that nuclear weapons were not out of the question. Some people in Ukraine basically said that the, the Russia invoking the use of nuclear weapons was just a tactic to try to scare people. Yeah, they've been doing that Ukraine. basically since the beginning. Yeah, Yes, they have. One thing just to point out is that like, I think the idea of the U.S. saying that they're going to weaken the the Russian military and that that's some kind of proof that this is some kind of you know regime change goal. Though, to me, those are two different things. Like, we're, it it is accepted by most Americans that we want to weaken the Russian military because they invaded a sovereign democracy. And so, to us, like not saying we would want to weaken the military would be strange to me. And if people want to say that that is some kind of evidence of some grander plan, like that wouldn't be the evidence I'd point to. Like, I would say, you know. Biden saying more explicit things about regime change, if I were to make that argument, mm -hmm. that's probably the evidence I would point to. Yeah, definitely. And another thing that Lloyd Austin said recently in Germany was um, like in front of a bunch of allies that it seems like pretty much everyone allied on the Ukrainian side is kind of optimistic for their prospects, which is good to hear. Yeah, that is good to hear. So let's move on to the 2022 midterms. These elections are heating up. And for Republican candidates across the country, the only thing more coveted than tickets to a Ben Shapiro lecture tour is an endorsement from number 45 himself. Yes, that's right. Trump's seal of approval is the golden snitch of Republican primaries. And for good reason. In, in the 2020 primaries, 91% of candidates Trump endorsed ended up winning their race. That is a higher percentage than Kevin Durant on the free throw line this year. That's why the Nets are out. But Ravi, does the Trump endorsement mean as much as it used to, or has it kind of lost its charm? Yeah, well, a couple of numbers here. We have a few key primaries coming up, and that's part of the reason why we're doing this story is saying, hey, like, here's what we need to look out for as we head into like the, the I think the heart of the primary season. And May 3rd, we have Ohio, May 17th, we have Pennsylvania, and May 24th in Georgia. So essentially, each of the next few weeks, we're mm -hmm. gonna learn something really important. And to me, there's how do the Trump candidates that he endorsed do? And then there's how does his presence in these races affect candidates that he doesn't endorse, yeah. right? And so there are a couple of quick numbers here. More than, according to 538, more than 70% of Trump's endorsees as of April 19th believe that 2020 was fraudulent. And wow. we'll link to that. They give a good definition. I think they're fairly conservative, actually, in how they define that. Um, like people who merely question the election and things like that aren't even included hmm. uh, within that. And I think the standard has gotten so tight that people who have been fairly, I think, extreme on this issue, like Mo Brooks, have like Trump rescinded his endorsement of Mo Brooks uh, because Mo Brooks uh, seemed to make the miscalculation of saying to uh, his supporters that they need to move beyond the past election. And Trump actually cited that directly when he pulled his endorsement of Mo Brooks. And so this has a chilling effect. And so what you see is that in some of these key states, whether it's Vance in Ohio, whether it's Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, or whether it's Herschel Walker, these candidates are towing the line. They're saying the election was stolen. And in certain cases, including secretaries of state races and attorneys general races, they're actually explicitly promising to do things, not only about the previous election, but about the future election. And it's not even his endorsed candidates alone that are behaving in ways that should concern us. It's other candidates. Like, you know, this, the Vance is now ahead in Ohio. Who is second? 
Josh Mendel, both of them say the election was stolen. So it's like, it's not even just about the candidates he endorses at this point. So I think this is a clear trend and his his shadow is cast over all these races, including candidates he's not supporting. I, I think it's important to note, out, note that while he's been effective in some races and boosting numbers in others, he hasn't been. And I think that's reflective of the fact that versus in 2020, it was pretty much like his endorsement was a golden ticket. Right now, that seems to be less clearly the case. And I think that's obviously reflective of a breakdown within the Republican Party where not everyone is pro-Trump, like a third don't want him to come back. And in some areas, that's higher than others. And so I think it's important just when we have these conversations to parse out the local elections and the different nuances and what's happening on the ground there as well. Well, on that note, yeah, in Pennsylvania, Trump had previously endorsed Sean Parnell. He ended up backing out of his campaign and then he switched his endorsement to Dr. Oz. Now, Dr. Oz did go up in the polls after he got that Trump endorsement, but there are several polls that still have McCormick uh, leading Oz. And so it's kind of they're, they're kind of tied in many in many of these polls, but there are several polls that still have McCormick leading. And then, of course, you look at this Georgia governor's race, which is a very, very interesting uh, race in that particular race. Trump is supporting the former senator there, David Perdue, mainly because of his hatred for the current governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, because Brian Kemp refused to do anything to overturn the election there. And uh, Trump even went on record during one of his rallies, actually telling the people of Georgia that he hated Kemp so much that they would be better off voting for Stacey Abrams, who is going to most likely be the Democrat nominee there. And so... That beef is what's causing him to to support Purdue. But Kemp is up by 26 points in Georgia, despite Trump supporting Purdue. So, Ricky, you may have a point. This endorsement from Trump may not be the biggest thing that it was, you know, a couple of years ago. Yeah. Well, to me, though, it's not a matter of anecdotes, right? I think Kemp is an example, right? Sununu is an example of New Hampshire. But I think what we need to look at after these next few months play out is, well, what's his overall record and how many of those people change their positions in ways that you could demonstrably say are related to that endorsement. And the election lie is an, like, that's the thing that came from Trump. It's hard to explain otherwise. And it's the kind of thing that you can measure and say, well, this was his effect. And when you have certain cases where, you know, Kemp may be an outlier, where you have candidate after candidate across the country, and it's not just Senate, it's Congress, it's the attorneys general races, the secretaries of state endorsing things like that, whether they're getting his endorsement or not, they're changing their positions. A lot of them are explicitly changing their positions on this. That means he wins whether his endorsed candidates win or not. And, you know, in there are, there are certain cases like Kemp where he's been immune to the Trump effect, but then there are cases like where J.D. Vance where, and we'll find out on Tuesday, J.D. Vance was down mm-hmm. before the Trump endorsement. They were, you know, everybody was writing his political obituaries. And at least in the most recent Fox News poll, he's now ahead. He's doubled his standing since the March poll. And this is a guy who Trump came in, endorsed him explicitly, and named that J.D. Vance's, like, statements about the election were part of the reason why Trump explicitly said this in his endorsement. That's one of the reasons why he endorsed him. And so to me, that is, and that sends a message to Mandela and others that they toe the line. They at least want to signal to Trump supporters that they want this. To me, this is this is indicative of a trend. Yeah. And I think when we look back, we'll say, well, how many of Trump's candidates won? Clearly in 2021, he had a, you know, he had a good record of picking candidates. We'll see what his record is here. But then I think we need to go beyond just his candidates, who I think will be quite successful, but we'll find out. And then say, well, how many of even of the other candidates who won are adopting his positions? And I think what you're gonna find is that it's gonna be a significant number. Well, the interesting with 
thing with the Vance case is that I think the fact that he flip-flopped on Trump so yep. dramatically hurt him just in general with Trump people who didn't like that he was previously against him and other people who just don't like how clearly dishonest that sort of seems and um, strikes people. But I would just be a little cautious on the poll numbers with that one because there is those Fox News polls were almost two months apart, more than a month and a half apart. And there is one Trafalgar poll that was before the endorsement, but between those two that has uh, Vance at 23%, which he still is. So it's not as though Vance just shot up out of nowhere yeah. just explicitly because of this. But I think it definitely um, brought him closer to the hearts of some Trump people that were upset that he had previously been against Trump. And the numbers here are pretty stark. So the Fox News poll, 42% of primary voters said that Trump's endorsement makes them more supportive of Vance, while 23% it made them less supportive. Uh, another 27% said no effect at all. So 42, that's pretty high. And there are, though, plurality of voters is 25% of voters who said they remain undecided. So this can, this something could happen, but it is Tuesday. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Something could happen, you know, and as they say in the business, like primary voters break late and also their yeah. primary voters are not, you know, they're pretty low turnout a lot of times in these primaries. Yeah. And so who knows what's going to happen. I have my own feelings about it, but we're not like election predictors. My sense is like, this will tell us a lot though about this current state of the GOP when we're able to look back both on like, what is his record to say like, all right, what are his record in these races will tell you a little bit of something about his standing for the 2024 uh, nomination, but also the behavior of all these candidates will tell us a little bit of something about the future integrity of our elections. And the power of Trump when it comes to somebody like Vance is one thing, but then you look at the power of Trump when it comes to endorsing someone, Herschel Walker, former NFL running back, who is just completely obliterating every other candidate in that Senate race, will most likely be the Republican nominee. And he got a Trump endorsement very early. In fact, Trump encouraged him to run for that particular race. And that's going to be a very interesting race because if he is a Republican nominee, he will most likely go against uh, the current Democrat senator there, Raphael Warnock. Herschel's an African-American Raphael Warnock's an African-American. So it'll be a very interesting test to see if a black conservative can beat a black liberal in a deep South state, which I'm not sure if we've seen such a high profile contest with that, with those particular parameters to it. Yeah. I mean, Walker seems all but assured the nomination. Yeah. It's, it's in a way like it's an interesting test case of the demographic integrity of the two coalitions. Like, are you going to see, because you have Stacey Abrams on the ballot at the same time. Yeah, most likely. And so- it will be an interesting question to see, like, do you see a higher, like, do you see crossover votes? Yeah. Like, do you see, like, the love of Herschel Walker and his history in that state having an effect on the election? Or are people going to, you know, are they going to look beyond their reverence for him? Because if, you, if you've if you ever been to a Georgia game, people still wear their Herschel Walker jerseys even now. And he hasn't, yeah, he played, Heisman, for, he hasn't played for decades, yeah. you know? So there is a lot of love for him. And obviously in your home state of Alabama, we saw it with, with Tuberville, like, there is, even though he wasn't even a great coach. He was a terrible coach. Like, there is a, an appeal for these these sports figures, and it's not just specific to one party. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, we definitely will. Well, thank you all for listening and watching our program. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube page. And if you're listening to the podcast, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We will see you guys next time. <laughs>